1: memory escapes me the remark that remark will be explained as i go on but memory escapes me i i can't recall the last psychological thriller i reviewed this could be because i'm getting old or that my memory has been erased or tampered with such practices are central to megan golden's novel the girl in keller's way so megan welcome to 3cr
0: thank you thanks for having me on the show now
1: a couple of observations first and foremost you're a Melbourne-based writer, but you've chosen to set your book in America. Why is that?
0: I've lived abroad for many years, and I actually wrote this novel uh, two years ago, in, um, just after I returned to Australia. It was my first winter in a decade. And um, as the story emerged, I landed up having a lot of you know, snow, for example, in winter. We don't get snow here unless we're living in the mountains. So the story, as it emerged, it landed up being in the U.S.,
1: Right, yes, because, I mean, that snow is central because uh, a body is found uh, in the snow or once the snow melts. But also then some of the facts and statistics, you've got information there about the number of people that go missing uh, in uh, America. On any given day, there are 80,000 to 90,000 people listed as missing in the United States.
0: That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary, but they, I mean, they have a huge population there. But um, yes, I did a lot of the research um, online, which is um, one of the great joys of the modern world, okay. that we can do that. Um, the setting of the book is in North Carolina, which is um, actually where my aunt lives. Oh. And when I chose the name, The Girl in Kellersway, and I decided just randomly to name the road, this, this remote forest road, Kellersway, I just literally popped into my head, but then I was curious, and I thought, I wonder if there is a Keller's Way. So I went on to Google Earth, and I found a Keller's Way in the U.S. It was not in North Carolina, and I kind of zoomed in. It was a little bit what I imagined, but not quite. Um, but it kind of had anybody's <laughs> been found on Keller's
1: Way? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe we don't know. But here's another observation: you've got two narrative voices running simultaneously through this book, Julie. And Mel. Now, before we get into those two characters, there must have been a challenge involved in doing that. Two independent uh, narrative voices, each with their own identities and personalities. How did you manage it?
0: I, I mean, for me, the writing of the book was just it just evolved as I wrote it. But um, I knew that I wanted to have two voices. Um, I did do the tenses slightly differently because I felt that it would help the reader distinguish between them. But um, the voices really, they just sort of emerged until they were almost their own people. And so it wasn't that difficult in the end.
1: But they're separate personalities and you're telling a single story in some ways. That would have been a juggling act.
0: It was, and I, I tried to, initially, I think I had one from one character and the next, the next chapter from the next character, and when I was doing the process of rewrites, I found that there was some overlapping, and I realised that it would be better to allow the characters to tell different parts of the story to move the reader along rather than the readers having to be uh, subjected to the kind of the same story from two different perspectives. Right. So I, I used them, I intermerged them effectively to move the story along.
1: Right now, these two particular characters, Julie and Mel. Julie comes across as neurotic, but there might be reasons for that. What's Julie's, well,
0: she has a range of
1: challenges and difficulties and problems.
0: Yeah, so Julie's an interesting character. She comes from a working class background. She's married to a psychology professor. He's he's from a very wealthy established family. She doesn't feel like she belongs. And she feels very overshadowed by his first wife. Um, now, one of the influences of this novel is a book that I've loved ever since I was a girl, which is uh, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, uh, in, which, in which it's about the second wife being overshadowed by the first wife. So there are, I guess, shadows of Rebecca that flow through this novel a little bit. But, um, I, have- I was also
1: thinking Gaslight, the film Gaslight, where um, the wife is slightly neurotic, but this is being um, she's her uh, memories or um, events are being tampered with to make her that way.
0: So funnily enough, after I handed in the final, final draft to my publisher, I happened to read an article that talked about Gaslight, and I thought, wow, <laughs> I thought. It's a good thing I haven't. I didn't, I didn't see that movie before <laughs> because people could accuse me of sort of lifting some of the, the themes, but no, I, I didn't, but I, and I haven't seen it, and I, I've seen a lot of movies from that era, but I haven't seen that one, so uh-huh. it's actually on my list. Yeah, well, you, yeah. must,
1: you must see it. But, I mean, Julie's got a number of problems. Uh, her husband's infidelity. Her husband's name is Matt, but he's unfaithful, which poses a challenge, but there's more of a reason why she should be worried because she had an affair with him.
0: Yes, so Julie, well, Julie's uh, marriage is overshadowed by his first wife, Laura, who's this beautiful, brilliant woman who died tragically a few years beforehand. And she doesn't trust her husband particularly. And she sometimes likes to sneak into his lectures at university and see what's going on with the female students. And she discovers that um, what she, well, she believes that he's having an affair with a student who looks remarkably similar to his first wife. And that kind of then starts her a, a certain type of, I guess, psychological meltdown within her um, in terms of her trust and her marriage. And
1: But she's got a reason for being suspicious given that she had an affair with him in the first yeah, place she while, he was, she, while he was still she married.
0: She knows he's not a trustworthy character. And I, I wrote this novel actually at a time, so I wrote it two years ago and at that time in the US there was a huge scandal with a... a a website, an app, a dating app for men who wanted to have affairs and I can't remember the name, it was actually something, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, at the time as I was writing it, I kind of imagined, well, what would you, how would it feel if you were the wife and you knew your husband was using that app and, you know, trust and all of that. So it was just sort of all of those things were kind of bubbling about in my brain as I was writing this.
1: But also Julie has been involved in an accident. Uh, She's also had a miscarriage. And so there's a a number of events um, that keep echoing, including a voice, you need to get away. And she keeps wondering where she's heard this and why she's constantly having this echoing in her head, all adding to her psychological profile. Then you have Mel, who's the detective, a counterpoint in many ways to Julie, much more rational. Who's Mel?
0: Mel is a detective. She's a single mother with two um, young sons. Well, they're not that young. One's a teenager. The other's a a tween. And um, she's still recovering from the devastating death of her husband, who was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty. And she moved from the big city to this um, college town in North Carolina to try and rebuild her life. And she's a very dedicated detective with great instincts who is also dealing with the difficulties of both raising a family and also being a woman, I guess, in a man's world and then solving this, this homicide that lands up on her desk one day.
1: Not only that, her son Joe is getting into trouble at school and so we're all very domestic concerns, very real in many ways as a counterpoint to Julie who's neurotic. Um, now... What we have to complicate all of this is uh, several uh, psychological issues. As we've said, Julie's husband, Matt, is a psychologist, And um, one of the first lectures we hear, we all have urges. Some urges we share with other animals. Hunger, for example, one of our most primitive urges. Other urges are more sophisticated. They reflect the human condition, the urge for power, the urge for ownership or success or for recognition. So, uh, but Matt is uh, acting out his urges, shall we say. So urges are one issue. We have then hypnotism. Hypnotism is highly controversial. Some say it's quackery and others say it's a placebo effect, the power of suggestion. But then the more challenging one is uh, implanted memories. And if I can just find the right page quickly enough, we have memory implantation, she said, where the memories can be implanted and then processed by the brain as if they really happened. You're talking about feeding people false memories and making them believe they're real. Yes, that's more or less correct. That sounds like the scary end of psychology, I remarked. It might seem frightening, she agreed, but it has positive applications. If we can plant new memories, then we can help people who have suffered from trauma. Soldiers returning from war with post-traumatic stress disorder can be given replacement memories to forget a traumatic incident in the battlefield. By the same token, as you've pointed out, This field is filled with ethical dilemmas, such as, for example, to do this particular study, we had to create false traumatic memories, she said. But that would be unethical because a trauma, even a false trauma, can be harmful. And it's unethical to do anything harmful to research subjects. Well, this complicates the whole notion of a murder investigation if our memories are unreliable.
0: Yes. So as I was writing it, I was researching and um, I did a lot of research on memory and it's quite a fascinating topic. The way that um, we form memories and we store memories and that sense of deja vu we sometimes get. And um, I I went and I did a lot of, I um, attended, I listened to a lot of online psychology lectures and I read a lot of papers. And one of the leading researchers in this area, um, I mentioned at the back of the novel, um, her name is, um, if I'm not mistaken, Elizabeth Lufton. She's an American and she's done a lot of work in memory manipulation. And in fact, what she has done is she's um, exposed people to, because they can't expose people to traumas, she'll um, try and she'll get somebody to believe that they had a childhood trauma with, say, eating eggs. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, <coughs> during that time, when they ate the eggs, they had, you know, terrible violent stomach aches and so on. And she'll try and affect their memory so that they now believe that they actually hate eggs, whereas they never actually did before they went through that experiment. And so this is actually real work that's being done. But this is that going- I reference in here.
1: But this is going to complicate her. murder investigation how can you ever get the truth from somebody
0: well I mean I think that that's it's a perennial problem anyway because I think the point is that people's memories are not as set in stone as they think they are and I think that probably if you spoke to a lot of homicide detectives they would say that when they speak to witnesses there has they take certain things with a grain of salt or they have to double check things because people remember things differently from what actually happened
1: yeah um now, this actually becomes quite interesting because you've got a lovely scene there where Mel interrogates Julie, part of the murder investigation <coughs> that she has. Um, and this might help jog your memory. But, I mean, Mel's then got to rely on other cues and signals and a gut feeling to work out whether Julie's telling the truth or not. It could be, you know, very... And, but also the notion that the interview itself could then prompt Julie to actually recollect something because she's um, on medication, she's neurotic and all sorts of things. So it's quite an interesting interview.
0: Yeah, it is an interv- It is interesting because I have these two characters who are going about their lives and then they suddenly converge and they have this very important interaction where they're talking about something that's crucial for the case. And... Um, and I don't think that Mel knows whether what Julie remembers or not, but she's definitely trying to press her buttons. And um, she does succeed. She does help kind of push Julie over the edge in terms of coming, starting to deal with some of the things that happened.
1: Well, the other thing about Julie is that she goes off her medication, and, and this is captured in the narrative voice, where she becomes more and more neurotic but then decides not to take her medication, becomes clearer... But then uh, has another episode, so she's got to go back on the medication. Is that her husband being kind and sincere? What's going on here? And but you've gone, you you've had to handle that voice and get that change and transition occurring. We're running out of time. Um, you've got lovely little twists there as well. Um, we've got the daughter Alice, not Julie's child, but Mrs. West, Matt's first wife, Laura wasn't even pregnant so there's another wasn't ever pregnant which is another little twist that you've got there which brings us basically to the beginning of the novel which is a murder investigation because on keller's way it's the body of laura west that they find so uh, a psychological thriller it's entitled the girl in keller's way the author is megan golden and it's a penguin release jan
2: well There's a lot in that.
1: There is indeed.
2: I, oh, I, of psychological import, yes. Psychological. Well, I've got footy.
1: <laughs> Go for it.
2: And I'm welcoming, welcoming Vivian Kelly onto the program. So, Vivian, welcome. Hello, Jen. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's a delight. It's a delight. Now, you've got a character in the book called Nikki's Darling. He doesn't write books. He, what does he do? What type of writing does Nikki do? Nicky writes plays. So it's and when did he start writing these plays?
3: He starts writing plays when he's still quite a small boy, um, and he he plays with action figures and he uses the action figures as characters in the plays so that he, d- he writes. It's not
2: just action; it's really he sits down and he writes the script. He, he sits
3: down and he writes the script.
2: I would like you to start by reading the very first part very first paragraph out of The Starlings. Thank you. Yes, I will. For more than 30 years, I've done my
3: best to forget 1985. I crashed it into a matchbox, and I pushed the matchbox to the far corner of a dark drawer in the distant reaches of my brain, and I slammed the drawer shut. I've been moderately successful in this endeavour. Every now and then, something will remind me of what happened in that year. But I'm a determined person and most times I manage to evade it. But the other day
2: I saw Rose. I saw Rose. So after 30 years and Nicky Starling's grown up to be a very successful playwright, he's seen Rose. Who was Rose?
3: Rose was the nurse who looked after Nikki's grandmother when she
2: was dying of cancer and she dies at the start of the book. The start, it it has a big start because the big, the book starts with Nikki's 8th birthday. It does. But it, it, his birthday is of small consequence in when you think about his grandmother's death.
3: Poor Nicky wakes up to his eighth birthday to
2: find that his his thunder has been stolen because his grandmother has died. Now we're going to go back to his fifth birthday because on his fifth birthday, his dad gave me a hawthorn jumper with 17 on the back, Michael Tuck. Mum gave me tales from Shakespeare. What was the present that Nicky enjoyed most? Poor Nicky went for the Shakespeare. (laughs) He certainly (laughs) did. He certainly did. But his father, of course, went for football. And everything his father spoke about was around football. Frank is a very, very passionate Hawthorne fan. And uh, Vivian Kelly, how have you
3: organised this book? Um, I've used the... um, the rounds of the the 1985 football season as organisational principles.
2: It has just been fantastic to review some of those uh, footy matches and the great names, Dermy Berriton and um, and not not only Hawthorne people, we had Robbie Flower... (laughs) Indeed, yes. <laughs> yes. So football is the essence of uh, Nicky's father's life with Lee Matthews as his hero. But Nicky has other heroes. Who are they?
3: Nicky has heroes who are from his his reading um, and basically from his Arthurian reading. So he's very, very uh, passionate about Lancelot and about King Arthur and the whole... The whole um, Knights of the Holy Grail myth.
2: So he's also got these, he's been given these plastic models, heroes of the cosmos, which are all revolting. Like there's um, <laughs> yes. Kark and the Claw Man and Arlok the Prince and Fleshbane, the Lord of Darkness, who are all you know, moulded plastic of ugliness, well, no, heroic ugliness. Pretty revolting. And he sort of puts his imagination into them being king arthur's knights or mm. shakespearean actors and makes a play makes little plays so that they can star in them that's right um, his father is very concerned you know his father comes in Nicky, you need to look around you for heroes footy players are heroes and Nicky thinks footy players were big sweaty galumphing men Heroes were magical and wondrous. They achieved miraculous things in extraordinary worlds. Yeah, it was um, Nicky. He talks about himself. I was an odd child. I love books. I could play sport. I couldn't play sport. I didn't have friends. But what he did love was words. Mm. He loves words. How about reading that little bit about 117? Now, this is, this is an eight-year-old boy. Um, I tried to think of words.
3: Uh, this is when he's having a, 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 what, what you could call an anxiety attack and he has to try and breathe deeply and to think of things that will calm him. I tried to think of words, amorous, dolorous, prodigious, scullion, globular, hospitable, testimony, apparition, distillery, accursed. I murmured these in my, to myself
2: and by and by I was soothed. So these are the words that he doesn't really quite understand, but he he puts them into his plays and, and uses these words in these actions. And this is another bit from Vivian Kelly's book, The Starlings. And then there were words charged with glamour and peril, pirate, dragon, assassin, and morphine. So these are words that he's come across. Now you have to read the book to work out how the morphine gets in there, but it's very clever. Um, you mentioned anxiety attacks and this little boy, Nikki, eight-year-old, has got an enormous imagination and you've given him a, a, a scary... Um, it's actually called the unscared game. Yes. Explain that.
3: Um, Nikki is or feels himself to be a perpetual disappointment to his father because his father sees him as a bit of a sookie child And Nicky is always trying to be braver and better than he he feels he really is. So he evolves a game in which he imagines scary things and has to withstand them. And the scariest time is, of course, at night when you're in bed on your own. So he imagines a series of monsters and dragons and assassins and terrible ghosts. And then he tries to unimagine them. And they, it goes a little bit too far
2: for him to do that. Oh, the poor little kid. Yes. <laughs> now, of course, with all of the um, heroics going on, uh, things, you know, things, there's big things that are seen, like the football and, um, and his own imaginations, but he misses the, nobody really notices small things, you know, the unhappiness of his mother. Mm-hmm. And his uh, big sister, Pippa, who's seven years older, sneaking out at night and has to use his bedroom window so he knows about it. Yes, yes. Oh. And, of course, then we get to round 12. Now, anyone who knows anything about footy would, would know about this. This was, well, tell us what happened with Lee Matthews there. Um, well, Lee Matthews has a meltdown
3: and he breaks Neville Bruns's jaw. So it's, it's a big thing. It's a, you know, a very it's a big thing.
2: thing. <laughs> yes. Anyways, is he going to be charged with assault? How many weeks mm. is he going to get? You know, mm. is, is it a police charge? Mm. So, you know, I remember that. Mm. <laughs> and we're talking mm. back 85. Mm. Too. Mm. And it was called the um, Lee Matthew Affair. And this little eight-year-old has... What's this affair thing? You know, this is what the Lee Matthews affair is. But he's read about Lancelot and Elaine. This is um, Sir Lancelot from the King King Arthur stories. And uh, having Galahad in an affair or something done in the heat of the moment. So he sort of still doesn't know. And he's wondering about Grandpa and Rose. And there's Mum and the art teacher and Pippa and the school captain. There's a lot going on for a little eight-year-old. There is a lot, and he tries so hard to understand it. Mm. Well, um, I couldn't believe going through this round. That it was also the year that Dr. Edelston bought the club. There was a, 1985 was a yes, big year. It was. It and was. Of course, it drew, it, it, Nicky's father was incensed by this. Mm,
3: indeed. Well, I think a lot of footy people were incensed by Dr. Edelston and his <laughs>
2: helicopter. Um. Other little connections between King Arthur and football. We have the Holy Grail. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And... Nicky's father the only way he really talks to his family is about football mm. and this was the time about this holy grail that was the first time that the whole family were coming into a conversation and it was heated and like the melee in, in round 12 there was this big outburst in the family as well
3: yes yes it's a uh, footy can arouse very intense emotions and it can I think also it it can provide the sort of discussion that triggers emotions that are already in place but that people have been able to keep a lid on until then.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. Look, Vivian Kelly, you must have done a lot of research in the 1985 football year. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. I and did. sort of, did you kind of think, well, I'll I'll make the book and fit the what was going on into the football? Um, yes, I did think that.
3: Um, It didn't always work the way I wanted it to and there was a lot of kind of pulling around and and thinking, oh, that's not going to work, I'll have to put this in here. Um, I I had to get um, the, the, as Megan was saying before, the internet is a great source, but a lot of this wasn't in fact on the internet. So I spent many hours in the State Library going through old newspapers and printing them out.
2: Have you shown this to Hawthorne Football Club?
3: Yes, yes, at least they have a copy
2: of the book. Oh, they yes. should be buying multiple copies of this. Well,
3: they certainly should, and I, I, somebody
2: should tell them this, yes. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's, it's funny to sort of think about an eight-year-old. You know, here he is, he's doing his play action and writing plays about his heroes, having the heroes in his head from Arthur Times, but also learning about life. From the interaction of the heroes, it's like you know the biggest knight of the round table is Lancelot, and he can't he he tries to understand why Lancelot would cry.
3: Yes, I think Lancelot fascinates him, and the thing that fascinates him, I think, about Lancelot, is the fact that he's he is always trying to attain a kind of perfect heroic status that in fact he can't, he's he's doomed to failure and and, uh, he comes to see, I think, that many heroes fail at, at, at the last hurdle or, or possibly earlier than that, um, but that their heroic status is still, although it's compromised, there is still a lot there, that a lot of aspiration and pride and honour and all sorts of good things so
2: that because a hero does fail, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Well, he learned a lot and I learned a lot and, uh, it, it, and laughed a lot. Actually laughed a lot through this book. I'm glad. Can you blame King Arthur or Hawthorne Football Club for a family falling apart? <laughs> <laughs> it's Vivian Kelly. Her book's The Starlings. It's uh, a text publication and it even if you don't barrack for Hawthorne, it's certainly worth a read. Just fantastic. And coo your previous book, that won uh, a, a prize. What was that? Um it didn't oh well it was nominated in the Age Book of the Year. Oh, was that's the, right, that's yeah. right. Very good writing. I'm looking forward to reading that one now that I've read this one. Thank you, it's Jan. Very good. Look, um just one other little thing about what's happening this weekend. It's the start of Rare Book Week, ending the following weekend in the Rare Book fair at Wilson Hall at Melbourne uni it's really well worth going online especially if you're a Jane Austen fan or interested in um, old-fashioned illustrated manuscripts go online have a look at look at the rare book week everything's free it's just so many different places in Melbourne are open and it'll be a good outing okay well today I Thank you very much, Megan, for having a chat to us about your book. Thank you. At called? Ah, my book called The Girl in Keller's Way. And Vivian? Uh,
3: for, thank you very much, Jan, for my book, The Starlings.